1: We could be celebrating at least three major crises in these times, a crisis in energy, economy and climate, which are confronting us simultaneously and globally, adding up to the greatest challenge in all human history. You may ask, why celebrate? (laughs) These are ominous challenges. Evolutionary biologist Elizabeth Satoris says, Because nothing short of a fundamental review, revisioning, and revising of our entire way of life on planet Earth is required to successfully face these three interrelated challenges. She goes on to say, That makes this an amazing time of opportunity to create the world we all deeply want. She believes that, that this is not an idle airy fairy create your own reality dream but one we can successfully take on as we head into the future this is what we'll be exploring today with our guest dr elizabeth satoris dr satoris is an internationally acclaimed evolution biologist futurist and author her books include earth dance living systems in evolution a walk through time from stardust to us and co-author with the late Willis Harmon Biology Revisioned. Join us for the next hour as we explore new consciousness science and what it means for us today with our guest Dr. Elizabeth Satoris. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. It's wonderful to be with you again. Oh, thank you so much for coming and being with us again. I would like to start. You you have written an article called Celebrating Crisis Towards a Culture of Cooperation. Celebrating crisis. So um, in that article, you talk about, you go back to the early, early days of life on this planet. And I found it so inspiring talking about the early bacteria or maybe it wasn't even bacteria. I don't remember what it was, but talk about that. What, What was that and what
2: crisis appeared at that time? Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. This is the first half of evolution. The evolution of life of Earth, and I say of Earth, takes about 4 billion years. And 2 billion years of that time, Earth was populated only by her bacterial children, if you like, which are now called archaea. And these archaea caused the same kinds of problems that we humans are causing. They caused global hunger, They caused global pollution. They were extremely successful, uh, spread all over the earth, coated it. High as you can fly, deep as you can dig today, you find evidence uh, archaeologically in the geology um, of these ancient archaea. And there were a lot of free sugars and acids that had formed naturally on the surface of the earth. And because they were so prolific, they ended up eating it all and causing a hunger crisis globally. And so they got very creative. Life gets creative in a time of crisis. And they found a way to make food about what was left, which was minerals, air, uh, sunlight, and water. So they started to photosynthesize food and solve that global crisis in that way. That was the first big global crisis ever.
1: And they had... The- Photosynthesis. So they're taking from the sun and they're making their own food for the mm-hmm. first time. They're not just eating what's available.
2: That's um, right. They've already eaten up what was available, okay. these sugars and acids that had formed right. naturally. Mm-hmm. And
1: that... It, then that wasn't the end of the story or no, the crisis, it was it?
2: No, it isn't. And, and the reason that I got so inspired about celebrating crises was because of what these ancient ancestors did. And they are more like us than anything in between in evolution. So they solve the hunger crisis by photosynthesizing food, but the output from that process is oxygen. Now, there was no oxygen atmosphere at the time, And so the earth started to absorb the oxygen because there's so many of them doing this. And then the waters, the oceans absorb it. And eventually it starts to pile up in the atmosphere and it kills off many of the bacteria because it's very lethal. Uh, that's why we, we worry, worry about needing antioxidants and things like that. <laughs> and some of the bacteria then protected themselves. They literally were making a, a form of uh, sunscreen to protect themselves. Or they went underground as fermenting bacteria uh, to escape this oxygen atmosphere. But the best solution was when yet another lifestyle was invented by them called breathing. Breathing. And uh, this used the oxygen in the atmosphere to smash food molecules. Now, where were they going to get food molecules? The food had been eaten up, and they were making this new stuff from photosynthesis. But they, the, the breathers, the ones that could use the oxygen to smash food molecules, were the high-tech bacteria. They also developed electric motors, and they're as, as complex as our own, with rotors, stators, uh, which camshafts, ball bearings, everything, and they're 99% efficient. You can Google bacterial motors and see exactly how they're constructed, which enabled them to move fast and to invade big fermenting bacteria and eat out their molecules. It was a colonialism time, bacterial colonialism. And so that's where they were getting the molecules to smash to make a living, but those things were dead ends, too. You can't keep exploiting the inside and, you know, multiplying within these big bags of bubblers. <laughs> uh, so that that was a dead end. And eventually, the wonderful thing that they did that we're working on now is to cooperate in forming real, true community rather than all this hostile competition. Well, I just found
1: this story so enlightening because I, I hadn't heard any, any sort of model that we have for this, this cycle of maturation. So talk about your, your cycle yes. of maturation and what, what is that?
2: Yes, well, I, I learned that nature doesn't do either ors and that uh, Western capitalism took up the Darwinian evolution theory because it fit their model, this hostile competition. But the Soviet East was teaching Kropotkin's story, which was called Mutual Aid and was about cooperation in nature. So I said, well, obviously there's both in nature, competition and cooperation. What's the pattern? And I saw this evolutionary maturation cycle where a unity, such as the early Earth's crust of homogenized minerals, packages itself into individuals. So the unity goes into individuation. When you have individuals, they get competitive, they have different ways of doing things, and uh, this is the Darwinian part of evolution. Then, if they don't kill themselves off in this expansive phase where they're all trying to reproduce and bump off anybody who's competing with them in their competitiveness, then they start to negotiate with others, and eventually they resolve some of their differences and move into a cooperative model because they discover that it's literally cheaper to feed your enemies than to kill them. And in the best case scenario in evolution, those cooperative ventures become the next larger unity. And that, in the case of the ancient bacteria, was the nucleated cell, where each of them donated some of their DNA to a central library of DNA that we call the nucleus of the cell. And the others became cell organelles then. They couldn't leave the cell since they didn't have a full complement of DNA. And they worked within it cooperatively. And that cell is the kind we're made of. It was never reinvented. It's the only other kind of cell besides bacteria. So today we have free-living bacteria and the descendants of the archaea in our own cells. Which is the nucleated cell. Yes.
1: And... You you talk about that like the nucleated cell is like a city unto itself. Mm -hmm. How how do you describe that?
2: Yes, every cell in your body, and you have up to 100 trillion of them, is as complex as a large human city. You can get an idea of that by realizing that there are about 30,000 recycling centers per cell in your body keeping your proteins healthy recycling them, breaking them down, making new proteins. It's a very intelligent process. And that this is going on 24-7, and then you have in each cell about 1,000 banks giving out free money. <laughs> well, now, I, I've heard there's no such thing as free money. So what do you mean by free money? What, what do you mean? Well, it's more or less like banks that give out stored value debit cards with a line that you can debit from the card and then you spend that into the economy and when you've spent all that you're allowed on that card you take it back to the bank you don't have to repay the debt the bank gives you a new debit line and they adjust how much you get it could be more or less than you had before depending on how much money you can circulate properly in the economy without causing inflation or deflation you see in a money system If you watch the movie that's free online, if you hunt a little, called The Secret of Oz, you'll see that it's not what backs money, it's who issues it, who controls it, what they do with it. And money was never meant to be a commodity that you could make more money on. All the religions for bad money lending thousands of years ago, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, they all knew it was bad. That debt money is designed to concentrate wealth, exactly what you're seeing in the U.S. today and all over the world today, where you get this extreme gap between poverty and wealth, and the poor are more and more jobless and uh, houseless and poorer, the middle class eroding, while the bankers are raking it in.
1: (laughs) Going back um, to... The maturation process mm-hmm. and that whole cycle, when it, it, it's more like a spiral, isn't it? Because it, 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 it's not like, like you are right, now you come to cooperation and that's the end of it.
2: Perfect. What happens after that? Exactly. You see, the nucleated cell was the next larger unit from the bacterial cell but that nucleated cell even though it was the fruit of the cooperating bacteria as a new en- it's a new entity it is new it is goes into juvenile mode or it is born into juvenile mode because it has now been differentiated in nature so for another billion years which brings us to 3 quarters of evolution those nucleated cells duked it out and went into hostilities and invented new th- ways of life and got diverse and all that stuff. And eventually they learned the same maturation lesson that it's cheaper to feed your enemies than to kill them. It takes less energy. So what did they form? The multi-celled creature, which again was a cooperative of different kinds of cells doing different jobs. So those are the first two big steps in evolution. Now, we are multi-celled creatures. And by the way, after every great extinction on the planet, again, crises, you see many new species appearing at once in the fossil record, not just slow Darwinian branching into new species, but all at once, as though nature has said, this didn't work, we've got to do something new, let's just reinvent the whole ecosystem at once. Let's talk more about that in just a moment. I'm here with
1: Elizabeth Satoris and she's Uh, Evolution biologist and futurist, my name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Elizabeth Satoris, and if you'd like to be in touch with her or find out more about her work, there are plenty of videos, articles, lots of free information on her website. Go to Satoris.com, that's S-A-H-T-O-U-R-I-S.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. Elizabeth, we are talking about how there's a cooperation going on with cells and, and now this whole maturation point of cooperation rather than competition and where are we now in the evolution?
2: Well that's a very good question because uh, humans have been around for about 100,000 years on the planet and most of that time we were living in uh, large family and small tribes uh, units on the planet and during that time, we developed the cooperation. We we learned in our groups to cooperate within the groups and, and often between the groups as well. And it was only about 6,000 years ago that humans had begun to build cities and agriculture and things like that so that they went into an empire-building mode by building a larger cooperative, just as the ancient bacteria had gotten together and formed the nucleated cell as a cooperative with a division of labor that was way larger than the individual bacteria obviously, humans went through that same thing. And so that arrived. was that was a kind of good thing. Yeah. For for a while anyway. Yeah.
1: And then what happened?
2: Well, here we are living tribally and most tribes getting along and learning to start trading with each other and things like that. And they form larger units, and then that larger unit becomes an entity That becomes an empire because it then gets exploitative in the juvenile mode of hostile competition and looks for acquiring more territory and absorbing more other units into itself and so forth. It was done in different ways in different places. The Incas, for instance, in the Andes learned to do it in very cooperative ways in the sense that they said Join us and we will see to it that you have a good life and that you can continue practicing your local religion if you also practice our state religion. And that's how the Inca Empire absorbed more and more tribes into itself in reasonably peaceful ways. But
1: Roman Empire didn't have quite as nice a... Uh, mode,
2: They were a little more belligerent about it and used armies and and stuff rather than persuasion. (laughs) And you
1: had to study our religion. You
2: couldn't do your own. Yes, that's right. Exactly. And so we've now been in this empire building mode for 6,000 years because we shifted from those empires that were actually run by emperors to the national empires like the Dutch Empire and the British Empire that we all read about in school. And now we're into the corporate empire phase. And the banking corporations being the the top of that pyramid, if you like. So it's time. What's happening now in the process of globalization where we're running into the limits that we can exploit our planet and the limits of our own population growth? And we're getting it that somehow we're going to have to start cooperating here or it's going to be a bad end for us. And as I said earlier, in that maturation cycle, if they don't kill each other off in the competitive phase, they can move into the cooperative phase.
1: So we can, so we can be, we negotiate, we start to negotiate uh, ways to cooperate. Is this kind yes. of where we are right now? Yes, or the and we've already
2: done it in many instances. I mean, For example. Some example. Uh, At the end of the Second World War, the oil cartel was born because the oil companies realized that cooperating with each other, they could become an entity that could exploit all the oil fields of the world by dividing them up among themselves, etc. And then there were other friendly cooperatives, such as the United States of America, and then NATO, and the European Union. And these are all cooperatives within themselves. They're cooperative, right? Right. But among themselves there's still these hostilities, so recognizing the planetary limits for ourselves, we realize that now our cooperatives have to be global. We have to form global family if we 're going to mature and make this thing work so Elizabeth, how do you see that happening? do we then
1: we don 't give up our ethnicity within that our individuality let 's say ourselves mm-hmm. uh, as as those little um, different ethnicities, but how do we become this global cooperation? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, that's a very good point that you're making, Justine, that we don't have to give up our ethnicities. We're not looking for a monoculture. A monoculture is a very bad human idea. It's when you plant only one crop instead of interweaving different ones, and it's not natural. Nature never does monoculture. It's a human invention. Anywhere you look on this planet, you'll find thousands of species, many too small to see, uh, even in in on glaciers and in deserts and so forth. At the bottom of the ocean, it's always diversity is the name of the game, and that's what we have to maintain the diversity, but do cooperation within that diversity so that we have uh, efficiency and resilience at the same time by being able to fall on fall back on different peoples and ideas and inventions and so forth. Now we are seeing an awful lot of cooperation in the world today. For example, the religions have more frequent parliaments of world religions. Uh, Our money systems work across all languages and cultures smoothly. They may be used for bad reasons, but they are in a cooperative mode of being able to work across all languages and cultures, as I say. We have scientists cooperating on international space projects. We have um, the Internet. We have over a million NGOs, as Paul Hawken showed us, by counting them. Uh, We have all of these cooperative things going on where where the NGOs talk to each other, and most of them are devoted to making a better life for people and cleaning up ecosystems and doing all the right things so we have an old culture and a new culture coexisting it's not about everything going to pot and some somehow then a phoenix rises from right. the ashes right. it's more like the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into the butterfly where the two systems are going at once and of course the butterfly uh, is going to live more lightly on the earth and the caterpillar doesn't want to die and so we find the old system protecting itself and trying desperately to continue to expand uh, against all the odds while the new cooperative system is being built from the ground up.
1: There is a, uh, There are major scientific loggerheads right now because, like... We hear a lot about biology and about nature. She never likes to waste anything, and she recycles everything she doesn't consume, and all of that. And as a as a wonderful model for the new consciousness science. And then there are the materialist. So can you can you describe those two different views of science that are kind of estant today? Mm -hmm.
2: Yes, you see, religions used to give us our creation stories, and nowadays science does it, because once we invented the Enlightenment and uh, the rights of individuals and developed secular societies, science got the mandate to tell us the creation story. And the story that they came up with came from basically physics and biology, the main leading sciences, And uh, physics gave us a world that's a meaningless, purposeless, non-living, material world or universe that comes together by accidental collisions and eventually produces consciousness in living beings as they evolve from non-life. So life evolves from non-life consciousness, comes out of non-consciousness, etc. And uh, this is the creation story we were given. Entropy was discovered... They failed to see entropy. They don't know the universe is in balance. So it's a non-living universe running down by entropy, and then life is an uphill struggle like, against that tide. And
1: like a like a clock just unwinding until or it a, finally battery so a battery running down. Or a battery running down.
2: More like the big bang is their battery and then it dissipates. dissipates. Radiation okay. spreads outward. Okay. Gravity pulls things back inward, but physicists have this Ongoing problem of having a unification theory that they don't know how to put together gravity and radiation. It's radiation outward, gravity inward, but they haven't been able to stick it together. And those people who do, in my view, are the ones who have discovered the idea of the black white W H O L E, the whole in which the black hole is the inward gravitation and the white hole is the outward radiation and everything's in balance and constantly recreating itself. But that's a different basic world view that Western science has not adopted at this point.
1: Elizabeth, I know that you were co-convener of a symposium in Japan and it brought together different scientists from different points of view. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes, I convened that symposium in Japan with a wonderful Japanese businessman and scientist, and the purpose of it was to track the paradigm shift that we've been talking about for the past 20 or 30 years in science, where many of us were changing our fundamental assumptions from this is a non-living universe that generates consciousness late in the game and yet can be studied objectively, etc., to the new assumptions that Those of us who were at the symposium had adopted, which were more like the Vedic science assumption of a conscious universe in which matter is created instead of consciousness last, consciousness first, and what that kind of a living universe would generate. And halfway through the symposium, I had an epiphany. We were listing these two sets of assumptions on the assumption that the second would replace the first, essentially, in a Kuhnian paradigm shift. And suddenly I realized that since I was teaching maturation from competition to cooperation as an evolution biologist, that was incompatible with this conquest model of one paradigm taking over from the other. So I proposed that we form a consortium of sciences in the world, sciences on an equal basis that had different sets of assumptions so that Western science, which was wonderful at spinning off great technologies because of its mechanical metaphors, could continue to give us the great spaceships and microscopes and telescopes and iPods and whatever, but... We would have parallel sciences that had a living universe model and therefore understood life better and could say to Western science, when you mess around in life with genetic engineering and high-tech agriculture, you're going off course. It's not good for us. It doesn't work. So if we could then bring in Islamic science and they could have their part in it, I thought that would be great, so I held a second symposium in Kuala Lumpur for Islamic scientists to write out their basic assumptions. And now we have the beginnings of forming a consortium of sciences.
1: And wouldn't it be wonderful if if when talking to a scientist that they say, okay, here's my basic assumption, and you know from where they're coming, and then you can accept it not as the end-all, be-all, but it is from that viewpoint that's
2: yes. that's very important, yes. from that viewpoint. Yeah. and Because it's important for everyone to understand you cannot have a science without a set of assumptions. You can't make a theory about nothing. You have to have an idea, what kind of a universe am I making a theory about? So that's got to come out publicly, that science rests on these unproven assumptions, and that different sciences could have different sets.
1: Yes. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Satora. She's a futurist and biologist, and she's the author of Earth Dance, Living Systems in Evolution. My name is Justine willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Elizabeth Satoris, and if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, Satoris.com, and that's spelled S-A-H-T-O-U-R-I-S.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. Elizabeth, let's talk about, um, I kind of think of it as um, the teeter-totter of chaos and the perfect order. I kind of think of it as a, when I read your your paper about chaos and perfect order, one, uh, it's not
2: that we want one or the other. So can you explain that? That's right. And Justine, you know, life is messy. And it's somewhere in between chaos and perfect order. Most people have an image of a diamond, for instance, as a perfect order. It cuts all other materials. It does not change within itself, right? It's lined up. All the little molecules in it are lined up perfectly. And then chaos is the big mess where nothing is sorted out and there aren't even patterns in it yet, but it's a potential for things. So life is a game that's always in between there. It's always, when it moves too far into chaos, it reorders itself. When it gets too rigid, it reorders itself as well. It breaks down when it's too rigid. And, you know, um, who was the man who wrote the wonderful History of Civilizations? Oh, and Toynbee. Toynbee, yes. yeah. And he figured out that those civilizations that got too rigid... And that had too big a distinction between wealth and poverty were the ones that cracked and broke open and then new civilizations formed from the debris, if you like. Uh, So... That's very important to see life as a kind of improvisational dance balancing itself, constantly rebalancing itself, and learning efficiency and resilience at the same time. We know now that in an ecosystem, you can't have too much efficiency because that makes you too rigid. Now, in our culture, we were teaching everybody efficiency is the name of the game. We time things, and and the factory worker has to produce so much in this length of time and stuff. Everybody's stuck in boxes, told what to do, and that kind of an economy doesn't fly anymore. It's too rigid, and young people don't want to be stuffed into boxes and told what to do. They want to be acknowledged as creative human beings that can... Bring their company to life. And after all, every business is a living system because it's made up of people. But we've tried to stuff people into mechanical models because of Western science.
1: Yes. And when you talk about efficiency, it's nature isn't going for an efficiency. She's going for effectiveness, isn't she? So
2: well, effectiveness is what you happen when you balance efficiency with resilience. Aha! Uh-huh. Then you can be effective because you can change things that don't work and preserve things that do. So, what's what's your advice? What what do
1: you see? Where are we right now in <laughs> in this uh, idea of there's uh, accumulation of wealth over here and a lot of poverty, and now we're seeing a lot of resistance to yes. this. Now, where people are starting to mm-hmm. wake up in a, in a big way to That's this. a living
2: system trying to rebalance itself you know, the living system doesn't want to have this kind of non dysfunctional Poverty wealth gap. It's dysfunctional if a lot of people are suffering because they're either going to rebel and, you know, attack the upper classes or they're going to try to build a new society in the gaps or whatever happens. It is a living system that has the urge to live, that wants to protect itself, that wants to be alive, learning how to be alive in a more effective way. Exactly, exactly.
1: So why is it important for us to understand what scientists are saying today? Why, why should we
2: be interested in what scientists are, are mm-hmm. saying? Well, you know, science is a wonderful thing for humans to be doing. It, it uh, showed us that there were the religious ways of getting knowledge by revelation and the scientific way to get knowledge by research. And it's important, it's, it's, it satisfies our human curiosity for one thing, and for the other, once we learn deeply how nature functions by studying it scientifically, we can get guidance for what we're doing. For example, we started out this hour talking about the archaea, the ancient bacteria that were the only life forms of Earth for two billion years, and how they moved out of their hostile competition into cooperation, right? These are the th- kinds of things that we can learn from nature and see, wow, and we're like, as Lewis Thomas said, big taxis they invented to get around in safely because our cells are filled with the descendants of the ancient bacteria as cell organelles, and then our guts and skins are housing ten times as many bacteria as we have cells. I've heard that we are more bacteria than we are anything else. <laughs> That's right, because if we've got a hundred trillion cells and ten times that many bacteria in our guts and on our skins, we're big colonies of bacteria, aren't right, we? Right, right, right. So we're we're just great. And,
1: that, and we're very, very... Um, I've heard also that we're like the... Um, the Hilton Hotel for bacteria, that the they really that like us. Yeah,
2: they inhabit us uh, in we our We have a guts. lot of nutrients or something. Oh, that yeah. We're, not, we're better than mud puddles. But it's better than, than the guests in the Hilton Hotel because these guests are useful to us. And we've now discovered... For instance, that our gut bacteria regulate 80% of our immune system. And once this really gets out there and people understand it, they'll be much more careful about what they eat. Because if you have a very healthy immune system, you will not get cancer, for one thing uh... and you probably won't get any of the degenerative diseases in the ways that we do now certainly not to the same extent we will you be mean
1: like uh... like alzheimer's or something like that yep you, even you know,
2: even alzheimer's yeah. uh... these are these or are things that we through heart very good nutrition yes heart diseases through very good nutrition we don't get plaque in our arteries and all of these degenerative things like arthritis and stuff so uh, we've got to be more sensitive to the fact that we're not supposed to call them germs and attack them all the time. You know, we, we thought up antibiotics. That means anti-life. We have to be careful with that. They are smart. They resist our efforts to kill them off. And they mutate themselves because they're so flexible about trading genomes in that first worldwide web of DNA exchange that they invented and still use. That we have to—we're not as smart as they are. Uh, our our consciousness is new in evolution compared to theirs. Right?
1: right. They were around for for the first. Well, we've only been around for what a hundred million 100, years. A hundred thousand. years. hundred thousand years. Oh, I'm getting my. And zeros. they go back four billion 4 years. Four billion years. So, uh, and that's why we're finding these. Uh, uh, resistant uh, Bacteria. strains mm-hmm. to
2: exactly. antibiotics
1: because we've been using them willy-nilly yes. for
2: everything, Stupidly. for a cold, a
1: common cold or whatever. That's right. Yeah. If we
2: had used them very selectively for the particular things they right. were designed for. Right. But now the worst thing is that three-quarters of the antibiotics that are used today are used on the animals uh, that uh-huh. we eat. Right. And so we're getting them... <laughs> If we, it,
1: unless we're, if we're eating meat and don't do an organic uh, meat, then
2: we're, right. we're getting right. all that yep. antibiotic yep. stuff. And our oh, children are getting we, it, and that's even worse. I'll tell you, when we really get this, Justine, we're all going to be demanding organic food, and we're going to be demanding clean body products and makeups. And, you know, the human yeah. being today yeah. has hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of toxics. toxins.
1: Right. And you you talk about a new report that's come out from the UN about the way we grow our food. What was that report? Yes.
2: Very recently, the UN came out with a report that said, and this is amazing, and of course wasn't in the newspapers because of what it does to high-tech agriculture. The UN report said the only way to double the food supply in the world today is to go back to small farming using natural methods. And the kind of thing Prince Charles in England has been role modeling and demonstrating that organic agriculture far outproduces high-tech agriculture. And this goes back to what I was just saying, that Western science is good at technological spin-offs but not good at understanding life. And so high-tech agriculture created deserts in the name of making gardens, as the World Bank admitted almost 20 years ago. But then they did other stupid things like uh, sending European cattle to Africa where they were not immune to tsetse flies and started epidemics of that. And, you know, instead of working with African cattle, they mess up ecosystems. They try to do monocultures where they do not belong. Right, right. And so we need other sciences that understand life to stand up to them.
1: And let's talk about, you mentioned uh, deserts, and it has been said that we're a desert-making species and that as we come into this time where things are getting hotter and Mm -hmm. hotter uh, and in some places colder and colder, I mean, there's this, like, dichotomy, too. But what what can we do? You you feel
2: like we can work with that. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm the one who started that desert-making species things. If you stand on the moon and look at humanity over time, you'll see that we have expanded the deserts of the planet. We started out by teaming up with hoofed animals to do it, like goats and sheep. And uh, then we went on to build machinery that can do it. Um, so it's, it has not been such a good thing for the planet that we have done that, but it's not hard to reverse now, in addition to cutting down all our rainforests, which makes deserts very quickly because of their shallow roots and all that, uh, we are burning more grasslands at any given time than rainforests. And grasslands is only one way to restore the deserts or grasslands, and that's to put more cows back on them. But they must be free-ranging. The reason for this is very simple, and the work comes from Alan Savory's Institute, which you can find easily on the web, that grasslands have a very big dry season in the summer, and the bacteria that would recycle the nutrients can't do it by themselves in that dry weather. They have to go through a cow gut or a hoofed animal uh, gut in order to grow the fertilizer You know that will then poop out and be there to restore the grassland. So, cows in feedlots are a problem with their farts, right? But cows on the range with no fences are not. And they will restore those deserts. Now this is cheap and easy and gives you free meat because the cows reproduce as the grass grows you get free grass and free cows, right? Now
1: now what about... it's not
2: profitable.
1: What about the uh, desert crust though, like the hooved animals will uh, dent the crust of the desert and I've heard that like there's this crust that holds in the moisture underneath
2: and if you, you, well the grass clumps need to be broken up, that's why buffalo think, needed yeah. to be on the range in, okay. in the United States because their hoofs break the clumps up so that the water can recycle properly and uh-huh. the grass can grow again, otherwise it gets sucked in, dried out and turns into desert and
1: yes. I know Terry Tempest-Williams has talked mm. about uh, the prairie dog and how important mm-hmm. the prairie dog yeah. is and
2: tunneling Around in moles just, and bacteria and prairie yeah, dogs, and yeah, in the case of that. grassland ranges, they coexisted with the hoofed animals, the big ones.
1: And you also know about like um, uh, Morocco and how they do things, but we'll talk about that in just one moment. I'm here with Elizabeth Satoris, and she's an evolution biologist and a futurist. And my name is Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Elizabeth Satoris. She's a evolution biologist and futurist. And Elizabeth, we were talking about desert farming in Kenya, in Morocco, and in Africa. And say something about the work of John McMillan.
2: John McMillan is one of my great living heroes. And uh, he has green deserts in 20 places in Africa and a few other places. Uh, Uh, in the world. And his most famous project was the Ansocia Valley of Ethiopia, which was the poster child for starvation in the 80s. And John reasoned that wherever people were still standing, there was some water. And so he very efficiently used the little water that was there to do intensive tilapia fish cultures surrounded by vegetables. These are vegetarian fish, so they eat garden waste and their waste feeds the garden. So it's a very tightly coupled, simple little system. And he ended up also planting 8 million trees in the Ansocia Valley and then developing clinics and schools and things. He's a very holistic practitioner knows everything about soils and can tell you how to do this anywhere in the world where people still stand.
1: So this is technology that's going to come in very handy as more deserts form.
2: Absolutely. And it's not profitable, you see, but it feeds people. That's why corporations don't go for it. And you want to keep them out anyway because you don't want any heavy machinery in there.
1: Right. So it's something that an individual um, community, a small group of people can do and do very
2: successfully. Yes. He should be teaching young people by the hundreds of thousands. Yes, yes.
1: Let's talk a, a little bit about the keyboard philosophy of science, <laughs> because I think that you really help us understand the whole spectrum of science in this metaphor.
2: Okay, it's it's actually more the Sartorist theory <laughs> than <laughs> sciences, but I was trying to combine these the fundamental assumptions of Vedic science which, with what I had learned in Western science. And physicists have told us for a century almost now that the universe is all vibrations. Vibrations are different notes on a keyboard. So I reasoned that we know that the slower vibrations are the world of matter. So put that in the bass part of the keyboard And then Einstein came along and showed us that electromagnetic energy, which belongs in the mid-range of the keyboard, faster vibrations than matter, were actually also still energy waves and were transposable so that you could transpose the music back and forth between energy and matter. Now we're moving up as far as the zero-point energy field from which particles come out. Now, meanwhile, the spiritual people, the Vedic scientists, for instance, had this whole keyboard in a sea of consciousness, right? That's the very highest vibrations. And the keyboard kind of curls up out of that sea and moves into slower, steps down into slower and slower vibrations. That's how you form matter within consciousness. So the spiritual people start in the high keys and are looking down the keyboard and the scientists in the West were looking up the keyboard. Now we see it's only one universe. We're all playing on the same keyboard and we should take down these unnatural barriers between science and spirituality.
1: You just now mentioned zero-point energy field. What exactly is that?
2: Well, that's the the modern world for what the Greeks called the plenum. The Greeks talked about the fullness of potential in the universe, how everything came out of this fullness of potential, this chaos, this chaos, which meant lots of stuff happening but no patterns visible and as the universe creates patterns and I believe it does so in the grand cosmic consciousness like ideas patterns are like ideas waves in the sea that start to form worlds uh, it's it's a really fun model because it's also very hopeful it's a co-creative universe in which you and I are waves in the sea and and we all get to play this harmonies together nowadays you hear a lot of people say oh we must raise our vibrations and I always say do that but don't forget to play in the low keys or you'll vibrate yourself out of here you'll go out of body you may die Uh, so let's play the whole symphony from the lowest keys to the highest a human being who is a material physiological being has the potential for going from the basest behavior to the most sublime behavior we can reach all the way to God, source, whatever you call the great I am, all that is, uh, from a human body. And there's a wonderful book um, by Stephen Mitchell, who's uh, Byron Katie's husband, called uh, Meetings with the Archangel. Yes. And in that, the Archangel says to the human, don't look to us humans, to us angels for compassion. We can't feel passion. You need a physical body to vibrate passion. We can't feel that. We admire you. We want to take on human bodies. Because you have a fuller range to play, I would say, in my words.
1: Oh, my goodness. What a privilege to what be a, a
2: human. Vi- yes.
1: Physical reality
2: is, is, is very dense in some and ways. And difficult. And difficult. It's hard to bring cosmic love all the way down to your toes. <laughs> you
1: know, especially in tra- but that's our job. <laughs> especially in traffic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's where, you, that's where you most need the that's meditative practice, isn't
1: Exactly, it? exactly. And I know that you are always looking for that question that gives us where we can really rest on this, this which doesn't change. It's mm-hmm. also the spiritual question as we look at for what doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And what have you discovered, mm-hmm. Elizabeth, that that really you can count on thats doesn't can, change? You
2: can count on that plenum, that source, that Uh, In one of Jane Roberts' books, she called it the loving presence of the universe from which everything is born. And that's what you reach in deep meditation, where your boundaries dissolve and you realize that you extend to the whole universe from your very unique perspective. It's what Ed Mitchell stood on the moon and suddenly had this epiphany where he felt held in the arms of the universe and knew he couldn't be lost. Uh, This is the security blanket we're looking for, and it's inside every one of us. And from that base, everything we think and dream and believe can happen, and we all can be co-creators, and we all have to believe that we're making this game up as we go. This civilization we're caught in now was created by us humans, and we can create the new dream and the new future just as easily. It's It is our responsibility. It is our doing. When our future generations look back at us, they'll see how we created what they are living. Right, exactly.
1: What are some of the skills that we need for co-creation for a better world?
2: Well, now we have to adapt to a hot age. I think it's too late to reverse it so we can learn from desert peoples who have lived well in deserts for thousands of years. And basically, we need to see systemically and holistically. We have to look at this large picture of our bacterial ancestors, how they matured, how other species along the way did it. If they didn't bump each other off, they got into mature th- and and maturity and created rainforests and prairies and coral reefs. We need an economics based on that if we think systemically and holistically we can get there. We also need to create this very positive vision of the future that we've just talked about, uh, so that we know what we're trying to head into and create. So and we let's have to just,
1: let's just yeah. say a little bit more about that, like creating a positive vision. So it's it's beholden upon us not to be depressed, not to be to go into oh hopelessness, oh it'll never work right, out, we're right. we're doomed, but that it we need to actually be able to
2: hold a positive and create a, a vision inside ourselves we for need the future. to believe in ourselves as co-creators we need to understand that we have the right the privilege and the duty to create the future so if we focus on fear and lack and oh my god it's all falling apart we're not going to get very far But if we say, oh, wow, it's falling apart. Here's the resources for creating a better future. This is how nature works. It comes alive in an extinction. It's not that we don't have compassion for the people that are suffering. It's that we need to be the role models for how you get through that suffering in positive ways by co-creating the future you want to live. Exactly. Right. And what's another skill? finding like-minded people to do that with. <laughs> yes. And the way you'll find them is to attract them by doing something that makes your heart sing, whether you may want to write songs rather than growing veggies, or you may want to create floating houses for people to, so that they won't destroy the grass. Um, you know, just don't put any toxins in them and make them completely recyclable. The techies can do what they want to do as techies. So right? you're, you're saying that that we
1: need to... to... Create, attract these people by mm-hmm. being in joy ourselves, yes. not being in in it. That's well, we're doing this because you know we these bad work. people over <laughs> there, and and yeah. we're gonna punch them out or whatever we're saying. You know, we're gonna <laughs> do in them, but rather to go to another place of. Yes. Oh, because this is fun. I mean yes, it there's got absolutely. to be a
2: joy factor in sure, it. Sure. that's want, attractive. If you're a young person, for instance, and you're doing something exciting about making a new world, the other ones will say, Hey, they're having fun, let's go over there, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What
2: trick? they say? Have a better throw a better party. Ah, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And another uh, skill? Well, finding that using the available resources in new ways, you know, like people now growing rooftop gardens yes. in the cities and getting together and seeing how they can develop local energy and local money that isn't based on debt. You just All you have to do is get everybody to agree to use it and then print it out and give it away. And they're, they're <laughs> popping up all over
1: the place. People can look them up. Oh, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. I want to say it's just been a pleasure <laughs> being with you today. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're so welcome, Justine. I love to talk about this because, you know, I I feel like a missionary sometimes. I want to inspire people to see this positively. Optimists have lots more fun. Yay, (laughs)
1: and you do. You do inspire us. I've been speaking with biologist and futurist Elizabeth Satoris, and she's the author of Earth Dance, Living Systems and Evolution, If you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, satoris.com. That's spelled S-A-H-T-O-U-R-I-S dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3417.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.